Here's what's happening over the next couple weeks. Today, we are continuing a series entitled, Why Jesus? I'll explain a little bit more of that in just a brief moment. Next week, we begin what is traditionally known as Holy Week in the Christian calendar. Pastor Omer will be sharing in the uh, Palm Sunday service. Pastor Danielle will be sharing on Easter. And then the week after, Danielle will be sharing the Why Jesus. Now, this is how this came about. I, we were planning the next several s- series, and this Why Jesus series was going so well. We were very sad to see it go, but it was a good season, and we're so grateful for everybody sharing. And I told Danielle, you need to share in the next one. That should be the service between the last Why Jesus and the end of our Fruit of the Spirit series and, and Palm Sunday. And you know what she said to me? You should share. <laughs> so that's how we got here. So um, I am a good, submissive husband and uh, respect my pastor very much. And so that's why I'm here. Don't snap at that. That's not snappable. That is not snap worthy. That is not poetry. That is polemics. That's what that is. A couple disclaimers that I'd like to share. I, I feel like I have a lot of disclaimers. So. Um, the, uh, a couple things. Number one, I am truly, sincerely so thankful for everybody who has shared before. And because of um, uh, the position, you know, I'm on staff and, and I'm kind of, the, kind of the founding pastor. I don't know what I am anymore. A founding pastor of the church. I, I want to just recognize that um, my sharing is no more important. I think Danielle and I would agree with this, that our sharing is no more important than the rest of the sharing. We hope that what we share is simply a complement to what has already been shared. We are doing our best to try to emphasize the community and and how brilliant and wonderful the community is. And that is truly what makes Spark. So my sharing, I've tried to narrow down to my story, just my testimony, some of the things that go on in my brain. And uh, I hope that it is of help and inspiration to you, but it is also uh, hopefully gives you a little bit of an insight to the journey that Spark has been on given the particular um, position that I hold, I suppose. So uh, given that, um, the disclaimer needs to be continued if you still feel led to raise your right hands. Uh, The views and opinions expressed in this program are not those of the speaker, uh, commentators, experts, or hosts are those. Uh, They do not explicitly or necessarily reflect nor represent the church's policy or the views held by the senior pastor or any of her associates. Uh, The broadcaster, uh, excuse me, the leadership of this particular church cannot be held accountable for all or any views expressed during this program. Do you agree? Yeah. Okay. All right. Furthermore, your attendance at this service... Or any other spark service or any attention given to any word that I might happen to speak or misspeak, hereto with acknowledges your tacit agreement to indemnify and hold harmless any other spark leader, teacher, member to the third and fourth generation with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to what may be said in this message. Do you agree? I can quit in five minutes if you want. Oh, Nancy, you're on fire tonight. I love it. Uh, that's, this, see, see why I love this church. I'd like to share with you some reflections, and I will tell you, I had a heck of a time trying to figure this out. Um, 
The journey that I've been on personally has been incredibly diverse and wild and crazy. So I've done my best to try to outline personal, vocational, and philosophical pathways to answering this question of why Jesus. It is an extremely abbreviated perspective, um, and that's just the nature of the beast. So if you are thinking that I'm leaving things out, you are absolutely correct. The number of slides that I cut out of this presentation to get it down to five minutes is pretty significant. So my story begins personally with my parents' divorce and a tumultuous family. I've been very hesitant to describe my upbringing in very negative terms because my parents are wonderful people to this day. Um, I enjoy their company. They are kind and generous people. Uh, my father is, is one of the most contributing members of my life to everywhere that he goes. But growing up through divorce, anger, yelling, uh, it was an incredibly tumultuous childhood, so much so that my sister and I sat on the back porch at one particular point during a very heated and what I would consider a violent confrontation between my parents and contemplated, uh, you know, running away. I'd, I'd seen those movies of children who had run across the country and decided to make it on their own, and I was the big brother who was going to save his little sister from uh, all the tumult of that. Now, that's just, an, again, extremely abbreviated. It includes uh, a lot of heartbreak. It includes two homes. It includes divided uh, custody. Um, the benefit of two homes is that you get two of everything. I had two Nintendos, two bikes, two bunk beds. It was, so I, I, did have double, I did have a double portion of blessing in that particular sense. But, but emotionally, it was uh, incredibly distraught. So in the midst of this particular personal journey, and there's a lot more to that, of course, extremely abbreviated, this institution, First Christian Church uh, of uh, Napa, became an incredible salvation to me. I found for the very first time, even though I had been going to church uh, for quite some time, I'd hated it, but this community welcomed me in. Part of their idea was to recognize that everybody belongs and needs to be loved. It was here that I first became aware that the whole Jesus thing, the whole God thing, the whole Bible thing, the whole church thing was not just simply a religious thing that you did, but was actually love and family. And fascinatingly enough, one of our dear beloved members here, Sean, articulated this really well in his testimony when he said... Because I always thought that uh, Christianity is bigotry and negativity, and, and Pastor Danielle is turning that upside down, and, and <laughs> to me now Christianity is love and spark is home. That is actually a pretty good articulation of my feelings as well. So when Sean said that when we were preparing those videos, I was kind of struck, and it became a real resonating chord with me. And at the time that we were filming, I didn't realize it, but the reason why, uh, upon further reflection, was because that's exactly what I felt as well. Jesus became love, and church became home. So, if that is true, and I dive right on in, and once I got baptized and became a Christian, accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior and all those kinds of things. I immersed myself in everything that the church had done. I started working and was employed. 
and as I have shared my story with some of you, the just name anything in the church. I have done it. I have you know, been a senior pastor and executive pastor, and I've preached, and I've done baptisms. I've run the sound system. I've played in the worship, all the way down to shoveling manure out in the front yard to put in the new sod, changing over toilets, installing toilet paper, running the printing press, going door to door, knocking, just everything that you can imagine. I poured myself into, because if you're a child and uh, well, a kid at this time in uh, you know, junior high, high school, and a community comes along that embraces you, man, do you just want to spend every waking moment you want with these people? And that's what I did. But as such, as you spend every waking moment with these people, they have an influence on what you think. Uh, hence my second piece, which is the philosophical journey. This is a winter camp that I went to in 1993. And you can tell that I took copious notes. I first learned about the different names and what they meant in Genesis chapter 5. And that conference was incredibly formative for me. I was like, wait, wait, there's an intellectual heritage to this faith. And I was really like into it. I took copious notes and I learned a ton. And I was like, wow, this Bible's amazing. And isn't that history cool? And all these names and the original Hebrew and the original, all that kind of stuff. And at the very end of this journal, I wrote these amazing words. This is, remember, just give me some grace. This is 1993. My greatest joy has been in worshiping him, fellowshipping with others who know and love him, and, and learning more about him, his word and his teachings and prophecy. And this, this seems very prophetic. However, my greatest confusion, besides relationships, <laughs> uh, has been the word of God. When I'm, uh, I'm thankful for Ch Chuck Missler, who was the speaker at that time, for opening my eyes and inspiring in me an attitude of gratitude and a great desire to know more, learn more, and teach more, not for my own honor, but for the sake of every soul on earth. I, I was grandiose, yes? Um, I'll follow his word and communicate until the end of the age, which began my series of broken promises way back there in 1993. This philosophic journey took me everywhere. It started with Dr. Walter Martin in the Christian Research Institute. And I read a book entitled The Kingdom of the Cults, because Christianity is true, which means everything else is clearly false. I got into every single debate I could, especially this very famous debate with a woman, Madeline Murray O'Hare, who at that time was known as the most hated woman in the world. And I would hear Dr. Martin say things like this. Murray, uh, of that particular era. Murray, since we're not on the subject of text, what was the New Testament written in? What was the language? I would be delighted to find out. You, you don't know? She doesn't even know what the New Testament was written in what language. Way to go, Dr. Martin. And the interview just went on. And she just whacked this way. Oh, she says hallelujah. Oh, did she know that hallelujah actually means praise the Lord? Thank you, Miss Atheist. You just praise God. I mean, just apologetics. Yeah, philosophy is right and all this kind of stuff. And it was just brilliant and, and beautiful. One of those cults listed in the kingdom of the cults, extremely predominant in the city that I grew up in because I had a really good friend who was a Mormon, was Mormonism. And so I went after Mormonism with so much energy and hype and excitement. And 
uh, Thelma Granny Gear, oh, I miss you, Thelma, so much, uh, was one of the grand influences for describing all of the fallacious theologies as well as the indiscretions of the Mormon church. And I got really into that and thought, man, I, I, I really now know the truth. I know what Christianity is. Mormonism is false. I studied everything about Joseph Smith. That's why Q Group and I, you know, we're going to the Book of Mormon musical in San Francisco because it's like, I'm still in it. I'm still in it. One of those, by the way, uh, when, when you do this particular study, you recognize that the angel that showed up to Joseph Smith in the 1800s was named Moroni, and someone somewhere along the way identified and noticed that that particular angel's name is actually listed in the list of angels in the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. So what do, you, what do you do as a good Christian who's been Christian for a year and a half? You go and you buy the Satanic Bible and you read that. Um, that was, um, um, that, uh, that, um, yeah, so I did that. <laughs> And that was, uh, I didn't burn up in flames. I didn't get cast down to the flames of hell. I did um, worry some of my friends and family at that particular time. Nonetheless, this journey continues to books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict and Josh McDowell, Apologetics and Philosophy. And believe it or not, yes, I soaked in Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis and everything about young earth creationism, how the Bible is true, science is wrong, because this makes sense. Why, why do you tell me to put my faith and trust in the scientists? Because they do keep changing their minds. Of course. You if they see, change their the minds, then is. of course they're not true. So that makes total sense to a 15-year-old. <sighs> this is kind of really therapeutic to go through, actually. <laughs> the next level of that philosophic journey ends in 1994. The great herald camping prediction for the end of the space-time continuum and the return of Jesus on September 6, 1994. Now, grant you, I had become a Christian in 92-93, just in time. <laughs> just made it. So that was my philosophic journey. And I will tell you, I, the books that I have, the tapes that I have, I was going through this and I was like, I cannot believe how much I digested over this very short period of time. I graduated high school and decided to enroll in Napa Valley College because I was making $4.25 an hour at the local gas station and I heard that telecommunications engineers make $150 an hour. That sounded good to me. I've been a good student my entire life. However, telecom one and two, electronics one and two, I failed both of them. I did take volleyball and got an A, withdrew from the other four, so I do have a 4.0 on my record. Thank you very much. <laughs> but nonetheless, I inquired, why did I fail? Like, I'm, I'm not brilliant, but I'm no dummy either. I'm, I've been a good student my entire life. What is it? Why, why can't I go and find a good career? I want, I want to make good money. I want to be able to provide for a future family, all these kinds of things. And the one thing that just caught, kept coming to mind, Kevin, during your first year of community college where you're going to go off and make all this money, what did you spend your entire time doing? I spent my entire time writing talks, working at the church, taking Bible studies, leading kids, 
taking the elders out on their retreats at every single camp, every single Sunday, everything, my entire life was consumed by the church. I wrote brilliant talks on love and sex and intimacy because 17-year-olds are the perfect person that you should learn this stuff from. Oh, dear God, I am so embarrassed at these talks. You will, none of you will ever hear this content, ever. No, it's on a secure drive, my friend. No, no, don't, do not even volunteer yourself. I'm... And so the vocational track follows the personal track. This community that had so loved me set me on a course and a journey that said, you know what, I think I want to do this for the rest of my life. So got the bachelor's degree. We got our master's degree, probably worthless degrees. I don't know. Do you guys care if I have a master's No, you don't care, right? So nonetheless. And for the next, I don't know, 25, 30 years, I had spent pretty much my entire vocational journey at various churches and ministries. And this is just the sampling. I don't have the logos from the other church plants that I'd been a part of, the other ministries that I'd volunteered in. And the common thread of my vocational life seemed to have continued. Um, My skill set is church. So whatever you need done, I will do. And I'm happy to do so. And it was a phenomenal journey. And then 10 years ago, that journey took a real turn because this woman that I was married to decided to plant a church. And that, again, changed everything. Now, this is the vocational track. This is what I now do as a job, as a living. And there's all sorts of things that I think about with that. And I will tell you, this journey has been incredible. I've got to travel California with this Filipino singing group. Got to write songs for them. This is our debut concert of their album that I got to write a couple songs for. I'm way off in the corner playing pianos. Nice, got nice feel? Yeah. It's called No More Crying. You know this one, yeah. Danielle knows one. You also might know this, that Danielle and I also got to travel. Look at those pictures there. We also got to travel with the band and and do all sorts of music and went to camps and all these kinds of things. And this vocational journey has taken me from youth groups and camps all the way to Jordan, where I got to visit the Zaatari refugee camp and meet some Syrians and their lives and all of that and everything in between. And it is, this was a really hard talk for me to, to, to do because it was just like, It's really nostalgic for me and meaningful to think of all the things, all the people and all the experiences along the way that have been so formative for my life. The most important one of those, of course, has been all the people that I've met. This is a message that I gave at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship after a a period of tumult. tumult. And my message was, this is why I love the church. And I brought up a bunch of people to represent. You saw Miss Pamela there. There's Gary. You're going to see Pastor Mark in there, Um, and maybe some other people that you might happen to know. There's Jesse and Pally, some people that I worked with. And so this is just a sampling. There's Pastor Mark. Look at look at Pastor Mark. Look at him. Oh yeah, there he is. And um, 
The most important element of this vocational journey for me has been the people. And when I said spark has taken another turn, I mean it. The people that we've met at this church, all of you, have just added exponentially to the joy and the blessing of what it means to be in this vocation. Mike Iaconelli has been an incredible influence on our lives. Just what a, what a wonderful blessing he is and a powerful voice. He would say that when he dies, he wants to be able to grab that microphone and before he takes his final breath, he wants to be able to shout into the microphone, what a ride, what a ride it's been. So, my personal journey led to the vocational journey, which led to a philosophic journey, and all of that is so intertwined, and I'm skipping over so many things, it's really painful. Why Jesus? Why church? Why still do this? My answer? It is complicated. You know, one of those churches that I was a part of, El Camino Christian Church, which used to be Sunnyvale Community Church, became New Venture Church. I got brought on as an executive pastor, as a worship pastor, as an administrative pastor, do all sorts of things. They, um, this image haunts me. They had this beautiful piece of property in Sunnyvale on South Mary in Iowa. Beautiful piece of property, beautiful church. They sold it for $2.5 million, which seems like an amazing steal nowadays. Decided to launch a new venture, hence new venture, because they were going to win the entire peninsula for Christ. If you notice that little block there, every time I look at that image and every time I drive around, I am just saddened because that church does not exist anymore. And there's track housing. Very nice housing, by the way, if you want it. We spent $2.5 million in about seven years. Now this church does not exist. Another experience that I had was over at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church. Let me also just reiterate the disclaimer that this is my story. I don't mean to disparage anything. These are just elements of my story. It was a lot more complicated. Uh, Menlo was wonderful. I met some amazing people there, had some wonderful experiences. Uh, for those of you who know about Sanctuary, the, the, the young adult ministry that Menlo does, I was part of the team that launched The Door, which eventually became Sanctuary. So that was a wonderful experience. I learned a ton. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Had some great people, met some wonderful people, um, who, who I still know to this day, who, who are lovely Lovely, wonderful people. But I also learned about things like money, celebrity, power, and immaturity. It was one of the most dysfunctional experiences I had ever been in in my life. And I realized that the church was much more about celebrity in some particular places than it was about actually doing the work of Jesus. And the money, dear God, the money. I was brought on with the donation of one individual along with 13 other full-time staff members, a building, program costs, by the donation of one individual. That Christmas, it, I mean, it blows my mind. I've ne Look, I've been in church my entire life. That Christmas, we had a Christmas party for the entire staff. They served us lobster, filet mignon, $100 gift cards to Nordstrom and whatever place, beautiful table, and I'm sitting in this room with this entire staff with a $25 million budget, and I'm having a, I'm having a crisis a little bit. It's like, I, I did this because I wanted to do something good in the world, and, and real, this is how much money we're spending? So I'm like sitting at the table, and I, you know, I'm eating lobster, and I'm like, is this what we should be spending our money on? And I'm like, yeah, actually, this, this is actually, yeah. 
this is nice. Yeah, that was really good. But I also realized that with money comes power, and with money and power comes posturing. And because I did not come from that nor have that, I kept being told to just stay in my place, do my job. It was an incredibly painful experience. So large church, large money, large power, all those kinds of things. I'm terribly sorry for all of you, my dear friends, who have gone through this with me, but it's part of the story. There are plenty of people in this church who know about Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, one of the most exciting, enthralling, life-giving experiences of our life. Junior and I met there. We had an amazing time. I took 300 kids to camp every summer. We saw people get baptized and saved. We saw lives being changed. Danielle was running a children's ministry with 700 kids. It was wonderful. We felt like we were on top of the world in some place. We were exhausted and tired, but it was wonderful and beautiful. And then in 2009, our celebrity pastor resigned due to, quote-unquote, moral failure. The chaos that emerged out of that for essentially the next five to seven years, and in some ways still continues today, devastated so many of my friends who were so tired of church hurt and so tired of hypocrisy and so tired of people who were entrusted with leadership to abuse that leadership, and yet it feels like it's just happening again. I got laid off and got this wonderful job at King's Academy. Man, I still have amazing relationships with some of those kids today. They're not kids anymore. Boy, are we getting older. And I, I just, I've been a youth ministry, youth person my entire life. Love them. Love, love, love them. They say the darndest things. They wreak havoc on your office. And they are just a delight and a joy. And at the same time, I learned for the first time just how vitriolic and painful and abusive and damaging conservatism and fundamentalism and literalism can be. People were talking about me behind my back. I hear about conversations later on because I was just trying to love kids and I didn't really care about their theology, but Kevin seemed to be liberal or progressive and I don't, all those titles that I just hate and disdain. And I didn't know why. I was just reading the Bible, which I thought was an essential piece of the puzzle. And if I had not quit from uh, resigned to that spark, again, all of you have been so kind to me, to come on to here full time, I definitely would have been fired, most likely because of theological reasons. Then I started revisiting. Remember these people? Yeah. I started learning, listening, reading. In that exact same debate where I remember years ago thinking, Walter Martin, you're doing a good job punching Madeline Murray O'Hara philosophically, then he says something like this. We have a first century fragment, which by radiocarbon dating has been proven to be a first century document. First century fragment. Right. Of the Gospel of John. Yeah. Yeah. How much of a fragment? I don't know. I haven't measured the thing, but I know it's got words in it that correspond perfectly to John's copy that we have now. But listen. Written in his own. When you refer. In Greek. When you refer. We have a first century manuscript of the Gospel of John. We do not. I've looked this up multiple times. Dr. Daniel Wallace, who's the preeminent uh, scholar on New Testament manuscripts, has confirmed that his reports 
were not true. It's interesting. When I was growing up in that church that I loved, one of my beloved mentors said to me, I just don't think it's right that a woman should be preaching. This was after the senior pastor's wife had given a message. It's against the Bible. Later on in, in Christian college, I mentioned this to a girl that I was dating. <laughs> she said, we can't date anymore. I said, I'll look into it. <laughs> September 6, 1994 came. Let me tell you something, and I'm dead serious about this. I got up that morning, and I sat in my bedroom, and I just waited. Okay, we got to 9 o'clock. And then I went back to the book, and I realized that in the exact same book that identifies September 6, 1994, he makes this passing comment. Oh, it could also be 2011. <laughs> Not to mention later on, we start learning about historical geography and history and context and realize that the word Armageddon comes from the Hebrew Har Megiddo, which means mountain of Megiddo, one of the most important cities on the trade route in the northern plains of Israel across the Jezreel Valley which may not have the same connotation. I started reading extensively on science, and science has been one of these biggest contention issues. And I'm terribly sorry for those of you who may be still holding on to this. I just need to tell you that the intelligent design thesis, especially regarding irreducible complexity or ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny, is false. <laughs> and then I got into languages. This is my Bible. And clearly, whatever it says is what is true. And then you realize, actually, there's more to the story than that. And you realize that the beautiful language behind the English is much more ambiguous, poetic, metaphorical, and brilliant than the English. Virtually every single piece of my vocational, personal, and philosophic journey has been radically upended through study, experience, relationship, etc. And we could go on and on. And then this happens. And honestly, I didn't know what to do. I was told my entire life to stay apolitical. That's not your job. But then you start reading Christians throughout history who have been highly political. Because if you are going to love your neighbor, that is in and of itself a political statement. And I felt like after that particular time, after this entire journey, this church that I had so loved was falling apart at the seams. And given that entire journey, I don't know if I wanted to be a part of it anymore. I, I won't get into this a lot, but many of you know I've resigned the title pastor. I will be honest with you in saying some of this is part of that journey. What does that mean anymore when you're facing all this? But remember, it's complicated. 
The philosophic journey would suggest that Christianity is just a mythology that is captivating other mythologies. And now I'm like, holy crap, is this just a made-up story? James Fraser suggested that the dying and rising God thesis is essentially the predominant, predominant archetype for why the dying and rising thesis of Jesus took place. Well, you're like, well, shoot. Is this really all a mythology? But then again, it's complicated. You know, Freeman, when he writes this book, The Closing of the Western Mind, the rise of faith and the fall of reason is going to suggest that science has been antithetical to religion ever since its beginning. And once science began to rise up, religion fought vehemently against it. Kinnaman and the Barna Institute suggested that because of the very bigoted uh, views of particular Christian sects, people were leaving the church left and right, and Christian Smith coined the term moralistic, therapeutic deism, which is the idea that we actually don't believe in the God of the Bible. We believe in a God that makes us feel good, that is separate and distant, and just about where you put your private parts. So, I'm really not wanting to be a part of any of this anymore because it's just not my thing. Okay. But it's so damn complicated. You know this thesis of James Fraser, dying and rising gods? That's also not true. According to Mark Smith, the methodological problem that afflicted Fraser was that he took data from various divine beings spanning more than a millennium from a wide range of cultures and smashed the data all together into a synthesis that never existed a good deal of our information about these other gods comes from sources that date from a period after the rise of Christianity. Writers who were themselves influenced by Christian views of Jesus who often received their information secondhand. You're telling me that even classical historians have biases and could make mistakes? Charles Freeman, science is clearly against religion, and when religion rose up, it was getting rid of the science. That turns out to be much more nuanced and complicated. The ignorance and degradation of the Middle Ages has become an article of faith among the general public, achieving the status of invulnerability merely by the virtue of endless repetition. If we keep saying that religion is against science, then it will become true. Just say it over and over and over again. Ronald Numbers sums this up by saying Christianity is anti-intellectual and anti-science is an old myth because the reality is... Christianity has been a vehicle and progenitor of science and reason all along. Many of you might find that to be shocking given the historical resources that we've been reading. To assert, as he does in his introduction, that Christian orthodoxy stifled independent reasoning would imply that Socrates had not been tried for impiety in the golden age of Athens or that books had not been banned in the reign of Augustus. In other words, it's been going on for a long time. And what may have actually happened is that the truth is that we are only able to read most of the scientific triumphs of pagan antiquity because of the hardworking monks of Christian monasteries chose to copy and study them. Thomas Aquinas may have rediscovered his Aristotle through Arab translations, but by and large, we have Freeman's irrational, quote-unquote, Christians to thank for preserving classical rationality, and for that matter, 
irrationality. In other words, and this is Mary Beard, one of the classic, one of the preeminent classicists of our day. In other words, Christianity felt because it was Mary. Remember my message from a while, a couple of Sundays ago, that because Platonism and Hellenism and all of those classic pieces of literature were setting the stage for Christianity. They continued to copy, preserve, and pass down that tradition. Christianity was the one that preserved rationality, science, and reason through the time that we call the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, which is a phrase that I don't even use anymore. In addition to that, Peter Harrison in his work sums that he writes brilliantly about a lot of things. Christian critique of pagan philosophy is often interpreted as evidence of bias against science. In fact, much of that critique was directed against astrology, divination, the worship of deified heroes, and belief in the divinity of the celestial bodies, which is to say against superstition. So all of that stuff that I'd grown up about Ken Ham being anti-science is actually a modern construct that is not true to the heart of the historic Christian journey. And now I'm like, what? It's getting complicated. Got to go to this amazing conference, the Gay Christian Network Conference in 2015. Went with our good friend, John Signorino. John, if you're listening to this, I miss you and I love you. Vicki Beeching, who gave her testimony, was out there with Westboro Baptist Church, arguably one of the most hate-filled, vitriolic, contemptuous organizations that we have who protest everywhere. This is what we often think of when we think of Christianity, some of us, especially after 2016 and some of the things that hit the news reports. What was not reported in any news outlet that I know of, that Justin actually writes about in his book, was what happened when we arrived. You'll see John here in a second. He's, he's going to be coming into the frame. There were four Westboro Baptist Church folks at this conference protesting. And dozens, if not hundreds of others, creating an anti-protest to welcome in everyone LGBTQ folks, allies, parents, and created a tunnel of love for us to walk through. And I remember, I was so glad I caught this video. I remember it was like four Westboro Baptist Church people, people make the news. This doesn't. By the way, it was raining. So guess what was right overhead? Okay, I am... Way past my five minutes, Nancy. <laughs> For fear of running into deep thoughts by Jack Handy, I've written out the rest of my sharing. It is virtually inevitable that incredibly influential historical figures become legendary. Their remarkable imprint on humanity is both breathtaking and fantastic. It is equally inevitable that the stories that are told about them and the generations that follow them also become fabled representations of the originator. That there are incredibly powerful, compelling, and life-giving representations of Jesus contemporaneous with bigoted, vitriolic, divisive, harmful, and destructive representations of Jesus is to me no surprise. Are not all human institutions susceptible to human error? What's that four-word axiom again? 
to err is human. An honest evaluation of the broad scope of Christian history would yield positives and negatives, failures and successes, incredible advancements and destructive setbacks. Christianity, as a container and conduit for the philosophies and teachings of Jesus, is therefore necessarily broken because humanity is broken. However, given Christianity's claim of being true and inspired from God, this failure is even more pronounced and rightfully criticized. Does this not make Christianity a mere religion, a human endeavor on par with other human endeavors that are also full of greatness and grotesqueness? It has dawned on me more than once in my life that, quote-unquote, Christianity has in that sense truly failed. Remember my disclaimer from earlier. It has fallen short of its calling and identity. It has been irresponsible with its stewardship of Jesus' teachings, and it has done tremendous damage to, both, to people both inside and outside its walls. How would I then, in light of this, dare call myself a Christian? What meaning does that moniker have? What does that title communicate? What experience does that claim continue to perpetuate in this world? This is a common question for those of us who have this religious history, and it is at the heart of the conflict of our identity. But simply identifying failure is the easy part. Calling out and naming the sin is not a skill that should be celebrated. We all already carry around with us a bias toward negativity and criticism. The harder task the, quote, narrow road that leads to life is to do what Christian philosophers have suggested throughout the ages, which is to go ad fontes, Latin for to the fount, which simply means to go back to the source. No doubt this is a mental and emotional discipline, especially in the age of rapid information at the speed of light, the manipulation of our attention through finely tuned algorithms, and the actual delinquencies of people who claim to be Christians and pastors who abuse their power or theologies. But every time I go back to the source, the best of which we have in the gospel accounts and in the early nascent reports of Christianity, I continue to be astonished. Leveraging the scientific tools of anthropology, history, philology, sociology, psychology, and other rigorous disciplines going back to the source of Jesus illuminates for me a clear line of demarcation between who Jesus was and the obscured, appropriated, distorted, and manipulated, quote, Jesus through the passage of time and culture. And I have been greatly persuaded that the very brokenness I see in Christianity, indeed the very brokenness of humanity, is exactly what the aims, philosophies, ethics, and way of Jesus was intending to directly address, redeem, and transform. Back to the source. Why Jesus in the midst of all of this chaos and confusion and complexity of Christianity? Because Jesus is the source. And when you do that, you can clearly see where things went wrong, how things went wrong, and how they can be put back 
to rights. Consider Matthew 23. I wanted to read this entire chapter. I won't have time. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, back to the source. Scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat. Do whatever they teach you. Follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, to to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father then the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith, which is faithfulness, true fidelity. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and all kinds of uncleanliness and impurity. You Also, so you also on the outside look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When I read Matthew 23 after going through that entire history, I thought that to me is what I wanted somebody to say about all of the indiscretions and the complications and the abuses and all of that chaos and the dysfunction of the churches that I had been a part of. And guess who said it? Jesus said it. I can call these people hypocrites because Jesus did. I can value something greater because Jesus did. I can recognize that even Jesus was in a dysfunctional church. Oh, back to the source. And this can go on and on. By, I mean, this is why Spark exists, is we're trying to get us back there. Consider Matthew, come to me. All of you, any of you who are weary, you're so tired. I was so tired and burdened. I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. If you are tired of religious hypocrisy, if you are tired of abuse and power, if you are tired of people taking advantage of one another, greed and all that dysfunction and all that pain, come to me and I will give you rest. This teaching is intended to change that. It goes on and on and on. Hit that too quickly. You know the story that's con- the woman caught in adultery. Well, that's just a title in your Bible. That's actually not in the text. You should actually call it, consider the hypocritical clergy of that story in John chapter 8. The year of Jubilee, the Good Samaritan, the parable of the lost things, consider Zacchaeus. Religious abuse, economic exploitation, racial and ethnic prejudice and animosity, intellectual ignorance and blind bigotry, hierarchical ethics and virtues of dominance and control, and yes, even the individual and collective moral depravities are all on the menu for reform in Jesus' agenda, all summed up in a phrase entitled, The Way. So if you ask me why Jesus, this is why. I can't, every time I go back to the source, every time I go to social media, I get really depressed. (laughs) 
Every time I hear another news report, every time, you know, Pastor Danielle reminds me that I will just be happier if I recognize that people are just no damn good. <laughs> it's a hard road. Every time I go back to this Jesus story, I'm like, holy crap, you were doing it. You were advancing the very struggle that we find ourselves in. And the values that you hold, Jesus, seem to be the very values that every single one of us are grasping for so much. I don't have time to go into all of the various ways in which this applies. Climate change is on the top of my mind because of the most recent IPCC report and it's a culmination of all sorts of things. It's racial injustice, it's ecological devastation, it's politics, it's money, it's capitalism, all the things in, in climate change. I read The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. If you ever want to be terrified, go ahead and pick this book up. And I'm feeling despair. Uh, feeling like, what the hell have we done to our planet? And what the hell are we doing to our future generations? And at the end of his book, at the very end, these are the disconcerting, contradictory lessons of global warming, which counsels both human, human humility and human grandiosity, each drawn from the same perception of peril. If humans are responsible for the problem, they must be capable of undoing it. We have an idiomatic name for those who hold the fate of the world in their hands as we do. Gods. And as soon as I read that phrase, I thought, this is the Genesis 1 account. The story that has been told, that you are all, every single one of you, created in the image and likeness of your creator with the very value and power and potential of, of, of everything that that phrase and idea and theology holds, that is who we are. And we tell this story because that is what empowers humanity to advance this kind of redemption. And that applied to climate. I never would have put theology together with climate change. It just never would have occurred to me. But I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, this is, this is the agenda. For the moment, at least, most of us seem inclined to run from that responsibility than embrace it. Isn't that what we do? The responsibility of, of stewarding that divine spark within us? Or even admit we see it, though it sits in front of us as plainly as a steering wheel. And in many ways, what I felt like David Wallace Wells was telling me, reminding me through, through this entire thing, is that there is a story and a theology and an idea that can advance a radical change. He's reaching for it, grasping for it. And all along, we've had it. The story that can launch yet again another evolution. He cites uh, this article, Tropical Depressions. The problem, it turns out, is not an overabundance of humans, but a dearth of humanity. Climate change and the Anthropocene are the triumph of an undead species, a mindless shuffle towards extinction. But this is only a lopsided imitation of what we really are. Buried in the despair and self-doubt is an important realization. If humanity is the capacity to act meaningfully within our surroundings, then we are not really or not yet human. And perhaps one of our greatest threats, perhaps the greatest challenge of our human history that is facing us in climate change is pointing us to a reality that fundamentally the reason why things go wrong 
is because we have not embraced the story, the theology, the ideology, the philosophy that we are created in the image of God. And just as God created this beautiful world of order and purpose and meaning, service, out of chaos, perhaps we are called to do the same in every single area. And the Jesus story continues that agenda, takes those old stories, reformulates them in a new era, in a new time, and says, all of that that you know and read in their stories, I am trying to show you how that now lives and works and breathes and moves in this time and era. And that, my friends, is brilliant and beautiful and compelling and exactly the story that we need. I don't have any answers for the Christian dilemma that many of us are facing. All I know is my story brings me back to this person over and over and over again. And no matter whether I'm reading on climate change, economic disparity, capitalism, politics, these authors keep throwing in things about our humanity, justice, our care for one another. What does it mean to rethink the hierarchies? All of those things. And every time I'm like, I read that in a book somewhere in a biography of somebody who is trying to advance a very similar agenda. And maybe what has happened, and we didn't even get to like the first centuries of Christianity where these early followers of Jesus actually did it. Pagans were criticizing Christians for loving their enemy. These Christians, they have slaves and women as part of their leadership and leading their charge. What religion does that, Pliny says? Oh, Christians do that. Yeah, they take the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. They put them in positions of equality and power and influence in their religion. What a bunch of idiots. So when you read that history, you go, they did it. So when I see modern Christianity and some of its expressions, I get depressed and it's hard and it's challenging and it's difficult. Ad fontes, my friends. Back to the source. That's why Jesus... In many ways, our time at communion is essentially a reminder of us getting back to that. And that's why we do this every week. Because this is the representation of all of that. In a ritual, in a meal, of bringing forward the entire person, life, agenda, philosophy of Jesus in this moment. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, just like then, all are welcome at this table. And as you come and eat, and as you come and drink, may you feel the very presence of that source once again. Thank you.